Hello, and welcome back to The Resistible Rise of J.R. Brinkley, brought to you by Untitled Theater Company Number 61, a theater of ideas in New York City. This is part two of four episodes. I am Dan Butler, your narrator and host. With us again is the artistic director and playwright, Edward Einhorn. And is that the sound of a telegraph? That's what I wrote in, so I assume the sound designer has added it. It was the newsiest sound effect I could think of, and we're going to have some very newsy journalists at the top of today's episode. Ah, was this sort of news being sent by telegraph? I have no idea. Probably not. I see. Any other writer's embellishments? Yes, there are quite a few. Obviously, I made up most of the dialogue, and some of the words Brinkley uses in this episode are quotations from another more modern politician. Trump. Yes, that's right. But the narrative is all true, more or less, and I even have a few direct quotations from Brinkley as well. It's all mixed together. How come? Well, the Trump quotations sort of fit in naturally, and it highlights some of the parallels between the two. Some of Brinkley's rhetoric was not so different than Trump's. Well, we have someone here today to talk about the connection between those political movements. Dr. Seth Kotler is a professor of history at Willamette University out in Salem, Oregon. He is also the author of Tom Paine's America, The Rise and Fall of Transatlantic Radicalism in the Early Republic, which won the best first book prize from the Society for Historians of the Early American Republic. Welcome to the show, Dr. Kotler. Thanks for having me. I look forward to talking to you later about a number of topics. Well, it's time to get to our story. But first, Edward's going to tell us a few things about Untitled Theatre Company number 61. Untitled Theatre Company number 61 has been making theatre in New York since 1994. Like all theatres during this pandemic, we are reinventing ourselves in order to continue to create theatre. We need your help. This year, we do not have a box office to rely on, many of the grants have gone away or shrunk, and our donor base is not able to support us the way they have in the past. All of our work focuses on ideas, political, scientific, philosophical, and above all, theatrical. Our style is inspired by theater of the absurd, mixing the comic and the tragic. In the 2000s, we ran the Ionesco Festival and the Havel Festival. Also working closely with former Czech president and playwright Václav Havel, Ionesco and Havel's work have been a continuing inspiration for our style. To learn more about our work and the history of our theater, or to contribute, please visit our website, untitledtheater.com. And now, let's move on to our story. When we left the story last week, if you remember, Brinkley was doing pretty well. His goat testicle cure for impotence had become extremely popular. His radio show was getting high ratings, and the money was flowing. But things were about to become more difficult. I used to be a fan of the Kansas City Star, but if you read it now, it has fallen into decline. And the slanderous stories they print about me. I have gone into homes and found men bedridden, ruined by his bungling butchery. I have found women crippled for life. Mrs. Cora Maddox says, I lay at the point of death. Meanwhile, Brinkley, drunk, straddled the door with a revolver in hand and threatened to shoot my brothers if they didn't pay him the $2,000 he demanded. (laughs) Meanwhile, the bodies pile up as scores die from the operation. My friends, 
This article in the failing Kansas City Star is fraudulent. Not a single patient of mine has ever died here. Other doctors may lose patients, but I daren't. Can you imagine the malicious prattle in this so-called newspaper if I did? They would hang me for it. Believe me. We have here five death certificates, all signed by Brinkley himself. They are but the tip of the iceberg. We have appealed to the governor himself, and he has refused to do a thing about it, saying, and I quote, We people in Kansas get fat on his medicine. We're going to keep him in business as long as he lives. Fortunately, not only the American Medical Association, but the Federal Radio Commission has begun to pay attention. I have received some serious news from a very reliable source. It seems that the American Medical Association, under the direction of their chief Jew, Morris Fishbein, has been giving bribes of up to $50,000 to members of the Federal Radio Commission as part of their campaign to discredit me. They have been working on this nefarious campaign with none other than President Herbert Hoover. Now, I wish I could reveal the name of the man who told me this information, but believe me, he is very highly placed, and he is horrified at what the president has been up to. I call for an immediate investigation into these activities by the FBI. And please, listeners, contact your senators and congressmen. The hearing on my license will be next week. If you enjoy the broadcasts I've been able to provide you over the last few years, let them know that these shenanigans are unacceptable to you. I will be in Washington next week, though rest assured, my wife Minnie will be here in my place. She may even bring John Jr. with her for his very first broadcast. He's learned just a few words now, and I promise it will melt your heart. In the meantime, once again, the Blind Cowboy. Howdy, folks, and thank you, Dr. Brinkley, for all you have done for all of us. I know I never heard a note of country music on the radio before you came along. You made that happen. I can't deny it, cowboy. I can't deny it. Now, I have a little song here I wrote now just to narrate your arguments with the FRC and the AMA. You want to hear it? I sure do. What's this accusal that I bamboozle? Nobody's business if I do. It's nobody's business, nobody's business, nobody's business if I do. AMA, here's my position, I just work on intuition. Nobody's business if I do. It's nobody's business, nobody's business, nobody's business if I do. Lots of patients testify, those that don't are rectified. That's why I paid them, it's no bribe. It's nobody's business, nobody's business, nobody's business what I do. Don't try to tell me I'm a fraud. Last night I had a righteous broadcast. The FLC is gonna make me lose my mind. It's nobody's business, nobody's business, nobody's business what I do. Just because our talk is lewd, it don't mean our station's crude. Nobody's business what we do. It's nobody's business, nobody's business, nobody's business what we do. So just do what's clearly fair and leave our 
It's nobody's business, nobody's business, nobody's business what we do. It's nobody's business, nobody's business. Ain't nobody's goddamn business. No. We at the American Medical Association deem John R. Brinkley guilty of deep immorality and unprofessional conduct. The licensee has perfected and organized charlatanism quite beyond the invention of a humble mountebank. Furthermore, upon examining his supposed medical degrees, we find them all to be completely fraudulent. He never was a genuine doctor and should not be allowed to practice as such. We are hereby revoking his license. Today I got news that will be a great disappointment to many of you out there listening. Little old Fishy Fishbine and his cabal have used their funds and their secret influence to undermine me. They have taken away my medical license and they have blocked the renewal of my radio license. Now, the way that works is, I still have three months to talk before the license runs out. And talk I will, believe me, because straight talk is just what they are afraid of. They want to censor my speech. They call it profanity to talk about the urgent medical matters we all need to discuss. I have traveled the state, and I know how many of you are suffering out there. I know that you need to talk about it with someone who can be honest with you like me. To talk about your sadness and pain. To sing about it with you. To help you cure it. I am your voice. Which is why I have decided to spend these last three months on a political campaign. Since the governor of Kansas now refuses to stand up to little old Fishy's cabal, I will be running to be the new governor of Kansas. We are a tremendous state, and we have tremendous potential, but we have been suffering a drought for years. For years. And I said, this is simple folks, I said, put a lake in every county, and the rain will come back. And I've been saying it for years. But no one, none of these politicians, not one of these politicians have even tried. And I read somewhere just the other day that the drought is the worst it's ever been. Even deserts have more rainfall. You need someone. You need somebody who isn't a politician, all talk, no action. If you depend on the politicians, nothing's gonna get done. They will not lead us, believe me, to the promised land. You need a leader. You need a man who knows what the problems are. There are so many of you without access to doctors. Every one of you, everyone, should have a doctor. And only I know how to make that happen. Meanwhile, the Jews have been bringing in their socialism. It is a corruption on society. It must be stopped. These people, they are not coming to our country with the best people. 
They are not like us. They are not like us. They want to take over our country, our banks, and our media. They are liars. They are thieves. Some of them, I assume, are good people. But they are afraid of us because we tell the truth. Well, I am here to speak the truth, to speak for you, and I will be coming, traveling from town to town with my country singers and my wife Minnie and my little boy John. You will get to meet them all, and when you do, ask yourselves, who is more like you? The politicians or us? So I assume this is one of those Trump quotes you were talking about? Uh, Yes, exactly. And some wrinkly quotes are mixed in as well. Little old fishy fishbon is his phrase, and the lake in every county thing, and the anti-Semitism. And nobody took this run for governor seriously at first, did they? Uh, Definitely not. Did you take Trump seriously when he ran? I took him to be dangerous when he ran at first, but I mistakenly assumed that first Republican voters and then American voters would not warm to what it was that he was saying, particularly the racism and the sexism and the xenophobia that I, like many people, had an overly idealistic or optimistic understanding of who my fellow citizens were and what they would tolerate and what they would not tolerate. So I guess I should say that I saw him as channeling really deeply rooted and dangerous energies in American political culture from the start. But I thought that that would not work at a national level on a large scale. And that was the part that I was mistaken about. Yes, it was sort of a perfect storm with some of Hillary Clinton's unpopularity in certain ranks. Right. I mean, people vote for a whole host of really complicated reasons and sometimes incredibly simplistic reasons. And so attributing one vote to a whole set of complicated issues does not always work. But that said, I also, you know, like a good old fashioned Republican, believe in personal responsibility. So when someone votes for someone who opens their campaign by saying that Mexicans are rapists, I think that the person who cast that vote is responsible for condoning statements and sentiments like that. Well, I look forward to talking about this more in just a little bit, but for right now, let's go back to our story. Did you hear that madman Brinkley has declared he's running for governor? I swear to God, it's true. Do you think he even realizes it's too late to get on the ballot? What are they going to do, write him in? This was Fred Houck, the Republican candidate for governor. He was talking to Clyde Reed, the current governor, also a Republican. He's flying around in his own private plane with Brinkley painted in big letters on its side. Leaves it there right next to him while he talks. Brings all his country singers with him and gives them all a show. All this was true. Promising free textbooks, lower taxes, a lake in every county. Oh, Lord! (laughs) (laughs) You don't suppose he stands a chance, do you? A write-in candidate with no experience and a certified quack to boot? Some of those voters may be foolish, but they aren't that foolish. Should be good for some entertainment, though. (laughs) Harry Woodring, the Democratic candidate, saw an upside to Brinkley's participation. I'm telling you, he may have more an effect on this election than people realize. He's a clown, but people like him. He entertains them. 
He's gonna take a lot of votes away from Hauk. I wouldn't be surprised if he gets as many as 20 or 30,000. We haven't had a Democratic governor in Kansas since Davis. It's about time, don't you think? As for Brinkley, he knew they didn't take him seriously. But as he saw it, nobody took Jesus seriously either. I went to the Holy Land a few years ago, and I went to see the place where the Lord Jesus Christ himself was born. A small little town, not much to look at, just like the little town where I was born, Beta, North Carolina, right in the midst of the old Smokies near Tennessee. Just like the little towns that most of you were born in, I'm sure. Made me cry to see it, I'm not ashamed to tell you. And I followed Christ's path, visited the very spot where he was jeered at by the Philistines, where he stood up to the moneylenders at the church, where he was nailed up on the cross by the Jews. I stood by his tomb, and I knew what Jesus felt. I knew it then, and I know it now. I know what it's like to stand up for what you believe, no matter who is laughing at you. It's always the men in power who are laughing, laughing at the common folk like us. Meanwhile, they rake it in, coming up government with their regulations and their investigations into law-abiding men like me. I'm going to abolish their unnecessary boards and investigative bodies, get rid of all the unnecessary regulations. I will drain Topeka of its corruption and inefficiency. Let's open our eyes and put someone in the state house who is no politician. If I'm elected, I'll ask your goats on that state house law. And you can drop by anytime you like. I'll be doing my operation again soon enough. Have you ever had a man in office that represented you? Truly represented you? I am that man. I am your voice. How about that, ladies and gentlemen? How about that? An amazing man, Dr. Brinkley. He's done so much for so many. Wouldn't you say so many? Well, you know, I like him fine. I do, cowboy. Now, we have a man. What's your name, my friend? Jimmy. I've heard you have a few words to say, Jimmy. You know, I'm not much into politics. Never have been. I have to say, life isn't easy for the average man here in Kansas. Something seems wrong to make it so hard. I've lived my whole life here, and the only one who's ever fixed anything, the only one who's understood me, was Dr. Brinkley. I have my son Billy because of him. So whatever he says, I believe. He's gonna fix the government and he'll end the drought too. A lake in every county. Don't believe the lies in the Kansas City Star. I never saw an honorable man so persecuted. I believe him. And you should too! I'm going to get a little emotional here, but... I've never seen Jimmy so happy as he has been in the past few years. Our son Billy is such a blessing. And so are you, Dr. Brinkley. Now remember, folks, you're going to have to write his name in, so we're going to make it mighty simple for you. Say it with me now. Letter J! Letter R! Letters B-R-I-A! 
A-N-K-L-E-Y. That's right. You've got it. Now, before these good folks go home, I think you have one last song for them, don't you, cowboy? That's right. It's a little bit different than some of my country tunes, but I think you might like it. I call the tune, Brickley, you're the man for us. We need a man to guide us, who'll always be beside us. A man who is a fighter through and through. That's me. A man who makes the state house once again a great house. And Dr. Brinkley, we've selected you. I accept. So it's Brinkley. Take a tip from me. Brinkley, on to victory. Victory to win. Here to make a fuss. J.R. Brinkley, you're the man for us. A man. We need a man of virtue, a pillar of the church. You won't forget what Jesus would have done. And I never do. A man with purpose holy, who listens to the lowly. And J.R. Brinkley, you're the only one. Only me. So it's Brinkley. Take a tip from me. Brinkley, on to victory. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know if you've read the latest editorial in the Kansas City Star, or as I often like to call it, the fraudulent Kansas City Star. As you know, that publication has been very unfair to me in the past, but even they are admitting that it's not only possible, but beginning to seem likely that I am going to win this next election. What they don't understand is what is happening right now is not just an election, it is a movement. What is going on in Kansas right now is terrible, just terrible. The state is broken by drought and by economic hardship. So many people suffering, feeling like their manhood has been lost. I alone can fix it. Believe me. Governor, I am telling you, if we don't do something drastic, he is going to win. Well, how is that possible? I've heard about the crowds he's been drawing, but it's just entertainment. Surely they understand that. Would they vote for the ringmaster of a circus? Maybe, if they knew his name and liked his act. Oh, the man who cured limp dicks with goat balls. People believe in it. He doesn't even tell clever lies. They're obvious. It's as if he's not even trying to pretend a leak in every county. They like everything he says. He knows how to talk to them. And when he gets elected and does nothing except line his own pockets, will that be enough for them? I don't think they'll care. Or notice. How did he get here? Why didn't anyone stop him? To be honest, Governor, you endorsed him when you said we were getting fat on him. So you're blaming me? No. No one could have anticipated this. But... Here we are. Well, what can we do? His followers are illiterates. That's why he chants the letters to his name at every rally. He loves the sound of his own name. He paints it on the wheels of his Cadillac, for the Lord's sake. Even so, half of them won't spell it right on the ballots. If they can't so much as spell his name, their vote shouldn't count. But he does. 
Not if we pass a law that says it doesn't. We can change the law now. Hmm. It's a few weeks before the election. It's either that or make him governor of Kansas. Can you imagine? I can, unfortunately. Do you know how the political elites talk about me? About you? Contempt. Pure and simple. You know it, and I know it. I am a rich man, and I am a successful man, but I am one of you, and they know I am, which is why they despise me. This is our time. I know how many of you feel like life has taken away your very manhood. Well, my friends, that's my speciality. I am your doctor, and I am here to cure you. I've never seen people so excited. I think you're going to win in a landslide. Wherever you go, it's like a party. <laughs> Letter G. Letter R. Letters B-R-I-N-K-L-E-Y. They are trying to steal this election, trying to stop the movement. Remember it. Write it down. Letter J. Letter R. Letters B R I N. K-L-E-Y! <laughs> on the day of the election, Brinkley stayed in the air till the polls closed, only leaving to briefly cast a vote for himself. His supporters turned out in droves. He even got a number of write-in votes in Oklahoma, where they were having their own governor's election. When the ballots were counted, the result was clear. Brinkley won. Shit! Then they eliminated all the ballots that were misspelled. 20,000 of them, all with Brinkley's name on them. When they were taken away, the winner was Harry Woodring, Democrat. Yes! Really? Shit! By 257 votes. Oh, Ooh. come on! <laughs> Are you going to ask for a recount, Fred? And risk Brinkley becoming governor? No, you can have it, Harry. We'll win it back in a couple of years. As for Brinkley, he had no radio station, no medical license, and no governorship. It was time to pull up stakes and move to Texas. In the meantime, let's chat with our guest, Dr. Seth Kotler. Welcome back, doctor. Thanks. There's so much to talk about. Why not start with populism as an American idea and the distinctions if there are any, between that and nativism. Right. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Clearly, the two have often been interconnected and intertwined with each other, but they're also separable. So, for example, a lot of nativists have also been real elitists. And so one needn't be a populist in order to be a nativist. And likewise, populism has many different variants, some of which are more or less open to others. So, for example, in the late 19th century, there were a good number of white populists who worked together with black farmers in various regions around the South, like Texas, to form a political alliance with each other. So that populism and a kind of xenophobia or populism and a kind of tribalistic racism frequently go together, but not always. And so part of what is happening 
in the 1920s, specifically with Brinkley, is that this is the heyday of the second Ku Klux Klan, which really explodes in the early 1920s. By 1924, some historians have estimated there are 5 million people who are members of this organization, and it's spread all over the country. And that is the ultimate kind of far-right, populist, xenophobic, pro-Christian, anti-Catholic, anti-Semitic kind of organization at the time that framed itself as a spokesman for the 100% Americans, America for the Americans. And it had this you know, racially coded, religiously coded tinge to it and framed itself against uh, dangerous outsiders of various sorts. So that what Brinkley is doing in the 1920s is very congruent with the general tenor of large swaths of the American population in this era. Well, how do you contrast the populism, the American version of it with other countries? I would think sometimes immigrants bring their own prejudices from the old countries into the new. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, part of the context of the populism of the 19 teens and 20s that Brinkley is tapping into is that it has a real anti-immigrant feel to it, even though many of the people he's appealing to are second or third generation immigrants, right? But that's standard fare, <laughs> as we see today. So part of the context here might also be the 1924 Immigration Restriction Act, which basically put an end to the previous 50 years of mass immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe in particular that brought to the nation tens of millions of people who ended up working in the factories and in the fields of the country in that era. And then part of what happened in the 1920s with this backlash against whether it be Catholic immigrants or Jewish immigrants is that the KKK and other what they called pro-America groups were very influential in pushing forward this legislation that passed in 1924 that in essence cut off immigration from places other than Northwest Europe. And so this is also the heyday of the kind of eugenic thinking. The idea that Nordics, what they called Nordics, were the best race, that races were organized hierarchically. As with all racist groups, I mean, race has no biological existence. People who are racist create all sorts of pseudoscientific categories into which they sort people, which they claim then determine the destiny of those people and limit or determine what they're capable of doing. And so that variety of thinking about the superiority of the genetic material of people from Northwest Europe, Nordics is what they called them, that was quite prevalent in American political culture at the time. And so it fed into the anti-Catholicism against folks from Southern and Eastern Europe, but it also fed into the anti-Semitism that we see with someone like Brinkley, the way he plays into the animosity that people would have towards Fishbein as someone who's Jewish, but also as someone who's coded as a cosmopolitan outsider. So that kind of rural suspicion and resentment of outsiders is another dimension, the kind of darker side of a lot of this populism that sometimes takes the form of a critique of the consolidated power of great wealth. But it's sometimes hard to tell the difference between when someone is criticizing the power of consolidated wealth and when they're participating in an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory about the Rothschilds who run the world. And the line between those two is frequently just non-existent in some of these movements. Oh, it's all fascinating and scary and American. <laughs> right, right. It is. And I'm still trying to figure out how to make sense of what's happening in the 30s. I was reading the Portland Oregonian recently from the 1930s, which was a Republican paper that hated Franklin Roosevelt 
And they referred at one point to the swastika as the New Deal flag of Germany. So they tried to associate Roosevelt's New Deal with fascism in Germany, which at some level makes no sense. But to their mind, it was basically this crisis of democracy and capitalism. And it was unclear what the resolution to that crisis was going to be. And for some, it looked as if either communism or fascism were the only two choices that modern nations faced. And when presented with those two choices, an alarmingly large number of people in the United States chose fascism over communism. The receptivity to fascism when it was perceived that the only other option was communism is part of what these political figures tapped into. Yes. I mean, you just use the word socialism and people can be swayed with a fear behind that when American socialism was its own creature that brought a lot of good right. and is still with us here. And part of the irony, of course, is there was a socialist newspaper called The Appeal to Reason that had really wide distribution in the United States in the late 19th and early 20th century. I can't remember the exact numbers, but it was one of the most important kind of national newspapers of the day. And it was published in Kansas, Brinkley's Kansas. And likewise, the state that had the largest number of socialists who were elected to public office was Oklahoma in the early 20th century. So the same places that were receptive to a populist appeal that could sometimes be deeply anti-leftist and anti-Semitic and anti-communist, and that frequently people assumed that Jews were communists and that communists were Jews. The two categories were sort of fused together. The same places where that message really resonated were also places where someone like Eugene Debs or a newspaper like The Appeal to Reason could also gain a lot of adherence and a lot of folks who were interested in it. So the story on the ground in these places is incredibly complicated. Well, that's a lot to chew on. I love it. Thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Kotler, and for sharing your knowledge on the historical background of this story. I hope it inspires people to go out and learn some more for themselves. Next episode, we'll be joined by Dr. Sam Parler, and we'll also hear about what happens to John and Minnie Brinkley after they move down to Texas and start a new radio station in Mexico. But for now, Edward's going to read us the credits for this episode. This episode was produced by Untitled Theater Company number 61 of Theater of Ideas. It starred Dan Butler as our narrator and host, Tony Torn as John R. Brinkley, Jenny Lee Mitchell as his wife Minnie, John Blaylock as the blind cowboy and Governor Clyde Reed, Craig Anderson as Jimmy and Fred Houck, Julia Hoffman as Laura and Cara Maddox, Joshua Wolf Coleman as Dr. Morris Fishbein and Harry Woodring, and Jason Harris as the reporter. Our songs in today's episode were Nobody's Business, parody of the song published by Porter Green and Everett Roberts in 1922, and Brinkley, You're the Man for Us, a parody of Harding, You're the Man for Us, written by Al Jolson in 1920. The musical arrangements were originally written by Tom Berger, and further developed by Richard Philbin, who music directed, mixed the music, and provided all the instrumentals besides the violin. John Blaylock, Tony Torn, Jenny Lee Mitchell, and Craig Anderson provided the vocals, and Julia Hoffman was on violin. Richard also composed and played our background music besides the violin parts. The episode was sound designed, edited, and mixed by Josh Samuels. The play was originally presented as a live stage version in New York in October 2018 at the Martha Graham Studios as part of the New York Fringe Festival. My name is Edward Einhorn, and I am the writer and director. Please visit our website, untitledtheater.com, to learn more about the show and our theater company and maybe to contribute. Thank you again for listening, and I hope you can join us for the next episode.